Welcome to the Public Health Networker podcast. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and in this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Katie Shank about the public health workforce. If you're an epidemiologist and you went through the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, what was that like for individuals who are part of the public health workforce? What was that like for people who were able to speak about the dangers of COVID-19 or the dangers of public health burnout? And what was it like for those who were unable to speak about such things while working full-time in a public health setting? What has been said and what has been unsaid continues to be a huge challenge. And in this episode, we talk about the public health workforce, what the public health workforce needs, the various components of what we're seeing as we um, are part of the job-seeking community, looking for promotional opportunities, and even education. What does all of this currently look like? This is a really, a very interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And to learn more and to be part of this continuing discussion, Katie Shank shares a, a LinkedIn group that she works on called the Public Health Connections Lounge. I hope you enjoy this episode. Are you feeling burnt out and exhausted in the field of public health? Do you feel like you're constantly working and never taking time for yourself? We need a call to action for all of us to prioritize rest and self-care in our lives as we care for other people through our work and to resist that notion that we've always got to be on. I'm so excited to announce our upcoming book club, which is an interactive workshop throughout the month of July. We will be reading the book, Rest is Resistance, by Trisha Hersey, a powerful and inspiring book that highlights the importance of rest and self-care, especially for those of us in the BIPOC and public health communities. We will also be discussing related texts as they relate to public health literature and similar authors on the theme of rest as a form of resistance and self-care. Throughout this book club, We will be exploring how we can liberate ourselves through rest and having meaningful discussions on how to apply these concepts to our own lives with the context of public health and BIPOC awareness and allyship. We will also be providing resources and tools for you to practice self-care and rest throughout the month of July and onward. We will provide you with a copy of the book, Rest is Resistance, and related texts as you join us for a month of reflection, connection, and growth. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on the powerful book, Rest is Resistance. Sign up for the book club today at publichealthpodcasters.com slash book club. And let's take the first step to prioritize rest as resistance. Thank you for joining us today for the Public Health Networker. Today, we're speaking with a fierce public health advocate. I'm really excited to speak with her today and share our message with you, to share her message with you. This is Dr. Katie Shank. She is here on behalf of the public health workforce. Again, she's a fierce advocate. She's talking about the the workplace, the different challenges people have been facing in public health. And we, we really welcome you today, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm excited to join you. Thank you. So tell us a bit more about you. You know, I've introduced you as this fierce public health advocate. You know, we don't necessarily in public health have to have an affiliation. We don't necessarily have to be. um, Sometimes I tell people you don't even have to have a degree to do public health. We can all be public health. But tell us more about the work that you do. 
Sure. I'm speaking to you now from my home in Washington, D.C., which is where I live with my family. Um, by profession and training, I'm an epidemiologist and a specialist in public health informatics. And I have several degrees that have brought me to that point, including a PhD in public health from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, but I think the more important things to share about myself are my values and that th th drive and that underscore the work that I'm doing. So I'll tell you that I'm really a big believer in using real world evidence and, uh, to follow the science. Um, I, I, I'm a big believer in working towards health equity, in promoting data modernization. Um, more personally, I'm, I'm driven by you know, values. I'm, I'm a feminist, I'm a mother, I'm a scientist, I'm from a family of refugees, and myself, I'm an immigrant, I'm Jewish, and another thing about me is that I'm always searching for community, and particularly in public health. So all of these rich and um, intersectional identities that I've just described to you really underscore the way that I conduct myself and most importantly, the work that I'm doing in public health. Thank you, Katie, that's beautiful. I love that you have so many ways to describe who you are, the multidimensionality of who you are as a person. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm just really grateful to have met you. I love the word community as well. Community for public health is so important uh, for many reasons, which I'm certain we'll probably go into a bit today. And um, yeah, thanks so much for recently joining us as well for the People's Public Health Conference in 2022. I'm really grateful. And um, you know, although we had some technical stuff, which I should not have ever even mentioned ever again, um, I'm so grateful that you joined us. And your message is con it continues to be very powerful. So tell us a little bit more about perhaps how did you get started in public health? Tell us about your experience. It's funny because as you say that, I'm realizing I never actually made a single decision to, to work in public health. It was more a series of incremental steps that have led me in this direction. So starting from you know, the early days when I was back you know, doing my undergraduate degree, I found opportunities to do volunteer work, um, which took me to work in Zimbabwe. And there I, I learned so much about health and development from working in peri-urban settlements with people and communities who were among the most vulnerable people. Um, and I saw firsthand, you know, for the first time at that point, the impact of the HIV epidemic. And so that was a real motivation and a very formative starting point for me where I learned a lot. And I continued my studies after my master's degree. I began my career working in reproductive and sexual health research. Um, and I was based in London and I was employed in the nonprofit sector there. Um, but I was really hungry to get back to field work in Africa, uh, which was my main motivation at that point. So I was applying for field work jobs and none of them worked out. And pretty soon I found myself on a one way ticket to the United States for a job in communications of reproductive and sexual health instead. And so I guess what you could say I was doing was following the money and going where the jobs were, because that's realistically and pragmatically um, you know, what we have to do. Um, and although I entered the United States on that one-way ticket, I honestly had no intentions of staying here beyond a year, maximum two, is kind of what I said to myself. And, and here I am 20 years later, and it didn't work out the way I um, imagined at all. So it, when I entered the United States, it was on an H-1B worker visa, uh, and I was sponsored by a nonprofit for, as I said, a job in communications of reproductive and sexual health. 
And that was, um, I was working in a nonprofit called Population Council, and I specialized in working in HIV. And that was a great place to grow and to learn and to advance my career. And then I grew into, from communications, I grew into a real hands-on research role. Um, and my focus was in global HIV, and I was really addressing the impact of HIV on children and families who had been affected by, by the pandemic. Um, and I found myself conducting field research. I got my dream, I got to go back to Africa, and I was conducting field research in various sites throughout Eastern and Southern Africa, including Zambia, um, Uganda, Kenya, uh, South Africa. And I was really focused on exploring the, the how to mitigate the impacts of HIV um, through a number of different kinds of interventions. I was particularly focused on pediatric HIV treatment, but others too. And at that point, I became an expert in working among children who'd been orphaned and who'd been rendered vulnerable um, by the illness or by the death of a parent. And I was particularly interested in exploring the ethical implications of conducting this kind of field research among really vulnerable children and vulnerable communities. And that became the source of a lot of my research and I published a book on that. And it's been, a, it, was, it, it continues to be cited all over the place. So that was a real kind of great stepping stone for me in my career. And during that time, I also got a PhD, which I was doing part-time and remotely using that, that field work that I mentioned. And it was also at that time when I started to build a family of my own. And as I began to have my own children, it soon became apparent to me that I was going to have to make some professional changes and I couldn't keep up that demanding schedule of you know, back and forth to Africa every six weeks. It wasn't working out. And it, it just didn't add up to me to leave my own children to go and work with other children. It did start, it, I know for some people it's, it's, it's a very sensible and natural and, and pragmatic transition. And for me, it didn't work. Um, so for several years, I moved instead into a more teaching oriented role. Um, I started teaching public health to students, um, both at undergraduate level and at graduate school. And I learned that I love teaching and I love my interactions with students, but I find the United States academic system very difficult to navigate. Um, so again, I found myself looking um, for other opportunities, but it was while I was teaching global health to, um, to my students that we started to hear the first news about COVID-19. And it became a part of my daily class routine to follow the latest news with my students and to work with them to analyze and discuss the implications in real time as, as the news was beginning to emerge first from China. And then we would daily discuss and analyze these findings until suddenly the campus was shut down and the classes switched mode and suddenly these conversations were continuing online. And I'd say that those students in the classroom, whether it was a classroom in person or in a Zoom room, they in particular ended up with a very strong understanding of the epidemiologist toolkit for understanding infectious disease. So that was a particularly formative experience in, in my teaching world. But as, as I was doing it and as I was teaching, I, I soon became very aware that my skill set um, in understanding infectious diseases might soon become valued in a different way, in a more pragmatic, applied way. And I felt a really powerful call to service to use those skills in my local community. So I, pretty early on in the, in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, I volunteered to serve in the Medical Reserve Corps, um, which is a, a, a volunteer um, corps of trained professionals who are able to volunteer their services at various sites within the United States. And I was immediately assigned to work in my local county health department with the epidemiology department. 
Um, and I, and I, I kind of grimace while thinking about that because funnily enough, that was the first time I really came out and identified as an epidemiologist. Um, because as, as you and I have previously discussed, April, epidemiologists like ourselves have, have such imposter syndrome about the work that we do in public health uh, and the job title. So even after 20 years of experience, I still kind of shudder a bit thinking about it, but I, I'm learning to become more comfortable. And as an epidemiologist in the local health department in the early days of COVID-19, those, those early days, you may remember, that was pretty scary at the time. Um, it was at the health department, it was all hands on deck doing everything as we developed tracking systems for new infections and figuring out what we were going to do for surveillance and how it was going to work. I, I worked with an excellent team and we all learned so much from each other. But at that time, we were pretty much focused on nursing homes and developing systems in the nursing homes. It was pretty traumatic to see what was happening in nursing homes and the ways in which infections were spreading uncontrolled, not just among the residents, but among the staff who you could clearly see were going to be the vectors of transmission um, between you know, the, the nursing homes and the community or even other nursing homes, because we had many staff we worked with who were working at multiple nursing homes. Um, that was that was pretty hard work, pretty traumatic times. And I couldn't believe how much time in that position we spent dealing with incoming test results that would arrive through the fax machine and then had to be manually entered into our system, in, into our database. And that became um, a real eye-opener with some harsh insights into the urgent need for modernization of our data systems. And even after my days working in Africa, in the most rural and um, rudimentary clinics that providing most basic services, it still came as a shock to me to find that this is the level of technology that we are reliant upon here in the United States and how primitive the health data systems are here. And it, and it became a real motivation for me to start to work to address that. Mm -hmm. um, so I stayed in that volunteer position for a few months. Don't forget that was the time when schools were closed and movements were restricted. And I would, I would drive to the health department every day along empty roads. And I was carrying with me my permit for being on the roads. I had a, um, a letter from the health officer stating that I was a designated essential health worker in the emergency response. And I would keep my papers with me at all times because I was terrified of being questioned. Um, and it became, a, it was a really very formative and uh, important learning experience for me. And I stayed in that position, as I said, for several months before, you, before moving into full-time employment um, in that kind of work. And my next position in the emergency response was with the nonprofit CDC Foundation, which was doing an excellent job of filling the gaps in the emergency response within the United States. So it would find the skills gaps at local and state health departments and identify individuals with the skills to fill those gaps. Um, in the end, there were about 4,000 of us all over the country in, in their, uh, what do they call it, staff surge, staffing surge program. And my first assignment was in person here in Washington, D.C. at the health department. And then at, uh, after a um, few months in that, nine, ten months, I was then assigned to a different um, assignment in the state of Illinois, which was a remote role. And I was... Um, again, in, in, that sort of, in that role, in both roles, actually, I was a senior epidemiologist leading a team conducting COVID surveillance, 
um, held a variety of duties and had a variety of different technical skills in leadership and different kinds of software. But the, and the most important skill I learned was in making myself useful and getting the job done and in looking at a job, seeing what needs to be done and getting it done. Um, but by last summer, 2021, it became clear that the funding for these kinds of positions was drying up. And I was among a cohort of thousands of people, thousands of public health professionals who were laid off from the surge staffing effort. And despite the fact that there was so much work still to be done in public health, um, all of these important jobs were cut due to a lack of funding. And to me, there's some really um, hefty cognitive dissonance in recognizing the gap between acknowledging the needs for public health workers and on the other hand, acknowledging the need that, that there are thousands of public health professionals who are now unemployed looking for work due to the lack of public health funding. So that brings me to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're right. There's a huge irony that's happening right now in terms of lack of funding, um, unemployment, sometimes underemployment as well. And um, what's going on with the pandemic that is still here. Absolutely. Yeah, there's just so much to say about that. It's just, it's really difficult. Um, tell us about the column, the series that you've been writing for the Public Health Journal. Um, I don't know the exact name of the journal, but perhaps you can uh, tell us more about the topics that you cover for the journal and what you've been working on ahead. Yes, absolutely. So I have a column, I'm a contributing columnist for JPHMP Direct. That's the companion website for the scientific journal Journal for Public Health Management and Practice, which is one of the leading journals um, of public health in the United States. It's where I share information about what it's like to work on the front line of public health you know, during, throughout, and beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's called The Public Health Workforce is Not Okay. Um, honestly, I, start, I had no idea it was going to turn out this way. I mean, this is what I mean about never making a single decision. It's all incremental steps. I started off with a single, you know, I was writing an op-ed and I had submitted it. And it turned into three separate pieces because it was quite long. And then honestly, those three um, episodes got such an overwhelming response that it then turned into an ongoing series um, and now it's just been extended and started the second season. And honestly, I was motivated to share my experiences through the column and, you know, um, because I wasn't seeing anyone out there whose life or career path looked like mine. And there was no one out there that I felt I could ask for advice or um, seek support from in developing my public health career. And when I got out there in public and started saying all these things about my experiences, I was struck by how many people then contacted me directly to say, yes, me too. You know, not this stuff. I thought I was the only one. Tell me more. And that response was very powerful for me to learn. And this led me to two observations. First of all, all of the responses that I'm describing to you were private messages. They were people DMing me through LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever, private messages in my DMs. No one would want it to be seen to comment publicly. No one wanted to be seen to you know, speak out in the, in the, on the website comment section. Um, no one wanted to take the risk of damaging their professional reputation. And I understand that speaking out like I am doing is a big risk 
and I'm really engaging my privilege by doing it. And I'm fully aware of that. But this taboo on our communication is stopping us from connecting with each other. And it's stopping us from seeking advice from one another. And it's stopping us from building community with one another and learning that there are other people out there too doing the same thing. So I think about that a lot. And then the second point that I learned from that, this overwhelming response is if all of these challenges are, if all of us are experiencing these challenges to developing a public health career, we're sharing difficult experiences of various kinds, then that changes my interpretation of what is happening to us individually and as a sector. For example, reflecting on how hard it is to get a job in public health. And I find people asking me, how should I edit my CV? Should I take some more online training courses on LinkedIn? Should I do some YouTube courses? What's the best software I should be learning? What other skills should I add to my portfolio? People asking me questions about really the, the important skills on the micro level. But when you recognize that many, many other people are also experiencing the same challenges to developing a public health career, the, the, the questions change. It's less about how each individual job seeker needs to, I don't know, change the font on their resume, and more about what we as an entire sector needs to do to recognize the need for change and agitate for collective action and for increasing the volume of our voice. So that realization led me down a different path. And although I still very much try to support people who ask me questions about um, uh, changing their resume and taking online courses, the, my focus now is much more on collective action. And that's been my goal in writing the column as I continue to do, and especially as I'm heading into the second season of the column, is to really to start to build community and connection and, and conversation among public health professionals, because we've been lacking those mechanisms for so long. Um, Historically, our field has been so um, not just underfunded, as we all know, broken up into silos. And we don't communicate across those silos. They keep us apart and they keep us stuck. And my hope is that in writing about the challenges within public health that we're all experiencing, I can draw attention also to some of the opportunities and solutions and maybe suggest some constructive next steps. But as we know, it all takes funding. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's so many difficult, difficult challenges as it relates to public health right now, as you mentioned with the pandemic, as you mentioned with the workforce, as you mentioned with the culture, the culture of silence, the silos. You know, um, that's one of the reasons why the Public Health Podcast and Media Network started. We started in 2021 when we saw that the pandemic response and messaging was just upside down. It was a it was a disaster, to be honest. It was a total disaster in terms of what was happening and um, the spread of the pandemic while people were losing their contact tracing jobs. And so, you know, we found that for us, the solution was going to have to be from outside of public health, especially since we were kind of outside of it anyway. And um, so that's why we created this network so that we could share voices like yours to share the opinions, the thoughts, the suggestions, the critiques of public health and find new solutions. Our, our logo or our mission is to build creative solutions for public health infrastructure. So I, you know, as part of this conversation, I'm hoping that you know, this network can continue to work with you and to find these solutions to, to make public health, public health again. <laughs> 
Um, so tell us, um, what do public health professionals need to know? For example, you know, there's a, a few levels of this. So there are people who are still interested, thankfully. You know, there are people who are still interested in getting into this field. What do they need to know? What should they prepare for? And then likewise, what do public health professionals who are challenged, who are going through difficulties, what do they need to know? Um, you're right, we could answer that. We could discuss that on a number of levels. But I want to take it down to its most basic response. And the most fundamental thing that I want to share and to communicate with my fellow public health professionals it is to know that you're not alone. Um, many of us at various stages of our career, whether you're fresh straight out of grad school or you're a little further on in your career or you're approaching a, a more leadership oriented or looking for a more leadership oriented position, there are many challenges in the job search at all the various stages of public health that are particularly apparent in our field. And because I've only just learned it, I want to shout it from the rooftops and share that you are not alone. There are many professional challenges in our field. And this, for me, this knowledge that I'm not alone has been a real game changer. Um, and let me give you, let me make it clearer what I mean. One prime example is in the practices around recruitment. There are some really tough things going on in recruitment right now in the public health jobs market. And when all your applications are being ghosted or when employers are asking for free work samples or when they're asking for references much too early in the process or when they're using bots for one-way interviews or I, the list goes on, we've all got stories, right? When those things are happening to you alone, it's miserable. But when those things are happening to you and you, you can discuss and share with other people in the same position and know that it's not just you, then it's a lot less upsetting. And I would even go as far as to say they can help you find support and recognition and advice. It might not help get you a job to know that there are other people out there also experiencing those challenges, but it sure helps me feel better when I, to know that I'm not alone and that it's not a personal reflection on, as I said, the font I used on my resume. Um, there are many other examples I would extend where this kind of community-based thinking might be helpful. And I'm thinking in particular of situations where public health professionals have experienced trauma from our frontline work or where they've experienced abusive working practices in our field, which are very common, or where they have experienced challenges in growing and developing along the career path. And in all of these different ways, I really want to promote conversation and connection and sharing information and supporting one another through our community, because learning that there are other people who also share these experiences can be astonishingly supportive. And finding them and being in conversation with them, I would say, can be not just personally therapeutic, but you know, institutionally and sector-wide constructive for rebuilding and re-nurturing the public health workforce. Thank you. Yeah, I think an important question you also want to know if you're starting in the field is to ask your employer if they provide career development support. And believe it or not, ask them if they write letters of reference. Um, yeah. So how can we get involved with how can we get involved with the work that you do, Katie? How can we join with this conversation, um, find the support that we need in the field of public health? How can we um, continue to contribute to this uh, movement 
I kind of see it as. Uh, um, great. I welcome people to, you know, you know, listeners to your podcast to come join this growing, budding community that we are trying to build. Um, if what I'm saying resonates with your listeners, then the best way to learn more is to, to start off learning was check out my writing. I'll make sure that you've got the links and you can put them in the podcast notes. Um, that's the, the column that I'm talking about. And if you like, in particular, if you like what I'm saying about building community, then come follow me on LinkedIn, come and join our growing group on LinkedIn, where we're starting to make connections and have conversations about these issues. And as I said, I'll put all the, I'll, I'll give you all the links, but I really, I'm learning so much along this journey from connecting with so many of my fellow public health professionals, including you, April. And you know, it's been a journey and we're just getting started. So these meeting points that we're all engaging in are starting points for conversations. And our next steps are kind of unclear, but there's still so much to be gained by sharing that journey. That's where I met with it. Um, the, the other direction I would suggest, if what I'm saying is interesting to your listeners, is to, con is to consider finding ways to be more vocal in telling your own story. Now, I know I'm speaking from a position of privilege and I'm able to go online and share my thoughts with great freedom. And not all of us have that freedom for a variety of reasons, but we've all got stories. And right now, there's a lot of talk and analysis of what's going on in the public workforce. There's, there's quantitative survey data through PH wins, through the CDC workforce surveys, there's lots of different data coming out, and it's worrying. Oh, my goodness, it's so worrying the way that we are losing. We are hemorrhaging public health professionals like there's no tomorrow. But the statistical stuff, when it's said by leaders who are, you know, at arm's length from the workforce, are just one way of looking at this data. I'd like to suggest that a more, a very, another very important form of data is the stories that we tell as individuals and as public health workers. And I want to find ways that we can platform ourselves as public health workers and work together so that people know what it's like and we can learn individually and we can learn as a community. And as, as, a, as the public health sector, we can learn and analyze our stories and rebuild the public health workforce. So this re really requires very delicate and careful exploration, but I'd like to encourage your listeners to start to think about ways to share their stories. I'm thinking about uh, developing ways to to get that message out there and I'd love to continue that conversation so that we can um, gather our stories together and platform these unheard and unrepresented voices. Would you like us to share your group on LinkedIn? Yes absolutely I will make sure you have all the the links to go in the notes. Okay and it's called Public Health Search on LinkedIn for Public Health Connections Lounge. That's where we're at. Well, my name, search for me and I'll yeah, point you there. Okay, wonderful. And also, can you tell us the name of the book that you wrote on HIV research? Oh, that's funny. It's a long time. It feels like another lifetime. Um, it was a book called Ethical Guidelines for Gathering Information Among Children and Adolescents. I think there may have been something in there about context. I can't remember the precise title. It's, it, it's published by Population Council and is available online. And um, it really, it was a, a valuable tool. And it's, as I said, it's still cited all over the place, but I'd love to get funding to work on an update. I think it's time now that we revisit and update some of this work because mm -hmm. thankfully the field is changing and we're all growing and we're learning more. Yeah, ethical challenges 
still exist. Um, they're they're huge in public health. Uh, we see they're in they're huge in front of us. So thank you so much, Dr. Katie Shank. Thank you, Katie, for joining us for this conversation today. April, it's been my pleasure. I look forward to continuing to learn together and to work together. Me too. Thank you.